Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Marcy Durth. Marcy is the Vice President of Residential Programs at Empower, an organization based in Longwood, Florida. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Lynn. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Well, I'm very excited to hear about your organization. For those who are listening, Empower was one of our 2021 award winners in the small organization or program category. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Very excited. One thing about that awards program I like to remind people is it's a peer-judged awards program. People who work in the field, who work with young people aging out of foster care, found Empower to be an excellent program, excellent organization, and deserving of this award. So we're very proud of you. (laughs) Thank you. We're very honored. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. If you would please explain your own background and how is it that you came to be connected with the foster care system? Oh, goodness. That's probably a long story. But (laughs) (laughs) so I immediately after I finished college, I started with the local prosecutor's office and was assigned to a sex crimes division and ended up working there for almost 10 years. Through the course of that, I was working very closely with individuals, primarily young people who had been victims of crime, you know, sexual abuse histories and such. And many of the kids and the adolescents that we were working with were coming from the child welfare system. So I think that was my first introduction. And I learned a lot about the system, learned a lot about the kids that were going through the system at the time. And then, you know, over the course of my career and the years, really just became more and more ingrained in it through the different positions that I held and the organizations that I worked with. When you started working there, you said that was the beginning of your career. It was. Yeah. It feels like forever ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> so you really have been aware of the issues facing young people aging out of foster care since, you know, like I said, the beginning of your career. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see it in a different light now, you know, just obviously because the focus for the programs that we're operating are a little different than what, what I was dealing with, what I'll call back in the day. But I think that, you know, a lot of the challenges are still what they were even then. Right. Maybe before we dive into the Empower program, could you help us understand the connection between foster care and you're, you know, saying being victims of sexual abuse, sex trafficking? I know there is definitely a correlation there. Anyone can become a victim of crime, but children who are part of the foster care system often become more susceptible just because of the situations that they are in, the home environments that they're coming from. And occasionally, you know, even the foster homes or the group home placements or or the temporary placements that they're in end up becoming places that they really shouldn't be in or that become unsafe for them. I just recently learned that one of the hubs of sex trafficking in the country is around central Pennsylvania. And it has to do with the highways that go through and intersect here. Young women, in particular, aging out of foster care, are extremely susceptible to sex trafficking. And it's just, I think, something that people need to be aware of and maybe connect with local organizations that are trying to help in those areas. 
Absolutely. I couldn't imagine what the percentages are, but we see a good number of young women and young men for that matter who have been trafficked that are participating in our village program just simply because they were trying to survive facing homelessness without family supports, without support systems at all. They were having to make very hard decisions about how they were going to eat, where they were going to put their head at night. And those decisions sometimes came attached to people in places that were doing them harm. I think that's a good segue in asking about Empower and what it is that your organization does. Maybe a little background about how the organization got started. I'll turn things over to you so that you can explain it to us. Okay, fantastic. So Empower was established back in the early 90s. We are a behavioral health and child well-being organization, and we operate a number of different programs. Some of them intersect. Some of them are mutually exclusive. The large percentage of our work is really focused on mental health counseling and treatment. So we have physicians and doctors and nurses and psychiatrists that provide outpatient mental health counseling, primarily through telehealth services, psychiatric supports, and medication management. We provide prevention programs within the schools. We operate drug courts. We have a residential program for substance abuse, specifically focused on adolescents. And then, of course, we have our village program, which is how we got connected. And our village program was established back in 2006 through the result of a community collaboration. The local community at the time had identified aging out as an issue in the area and really wanted to come together to figure out how best to address it. Empower was selected as the organization to step in and to help solve those issues. And that's really where the village was born. The village has evolved quite a bit over the last 20, almost 20 years. We are a transitional housing option. So we provide both housing in addition to wraparound supports for young adults who are between the ages of 18 to 24. The largest percentage of our client base really are those that are part of the foster care system, part of what's considered extended foster care here in Florida, or have aged out. A growing number of our youth, though, also are what we consider to be community youth. And many of those are young adults who didn't necessarily touch the foster care system, but likely should have. You know, they either fell through the cracks or somehow just didn't hit the radar to become formally involved. So you say your transitional housing program, is all of that on site or do you work with housing in the community? So we do a little bit of both, actually. The village, as I mentioned, has evolved quite a bit. So we really have kind of three primary areas of focus, the transitional housing being the first and foremost. That is or incorporates 16 beds. We have two homes on a track of land. They operate much like court college dorm style housing. So each of the youth have their own bedroom, many share a bathroom, and then they have communal areas like the kitchen and the living rooms and such. The other facet of the work, which is relatively new for us in the last couple of years, is the expansion of rapid rehousing services. We've got case managers who are working in partnership with landlords and apartment complexes, really focused on that housing navigation piece and trying to get those that are employed and have the skills to live independently into housing and helping to keep them stable. And then the third component is kind of the step down from even that. It's maybe they've gotten housed, maybe they are employed, but they still need a little bit of support just to keep themselves stable and not to reenter homelessness. And we call those extended support services. 
So when you have a young person who comes to join your program, how long do they typically stay in the transitional housing? It can really vary based on their needs, based on their goals, based on their abilities. We take a strengths-based approach. We really try to focus on each individual instead of taking a cookie cutter approach. I mean, we're all unique individuals and we all have different goals and different purposes. So we really look at the whole person. On average, I would say 18 to 24 months is about the length of stay for those that are living on campus with us. But we've had youth that have transitioned out much sooner than that. For us, Right now, probably about 70% of the youth that we are serving are still in high school or have not finished high school and working on a GED plan. So we really focus on education to give them kind of that foundation so that they can move towards success as an adult. But that can take longer for some than for others. Many of the youth that have entered the program have learning disabilities or oftentimes have literacy issues or are significantly behind in school just simply because they've been bounced from placement to placement over the years. And the stability and the structure just hasn't been there for them to be able to be successful in the classroom or academically. You said earlier that you have, in the other areas of your organization, mental health services. I would imagine those are available to the young people in your villages program. They are. They are. That was probably for us the hole that we had identified about three years ago. We're a mental health agency, and yet we were not necessarily focusing on the mental health component at our own program. So we brought those services in. And we do have a clinician on campus who provides not only individual services, but also psychoeducational groups and beyond, really trying to give that full wraparound. What we found was that we could give basic needs, but we weren't setting these I keep calling them kids just because I'm old enough to be their mom, but (laughs) these young people, we weren't setting them up for success because prior to now, you know, the mental health component was something that we weren't necessarily focusing on, but it can be really hard to keep paying your rent and to keep going to work when you're struggling with severe depression or anxiety. I'm getting the sense just with all of the organizations I talk with that the mental health support is key. The relationships with somebody, you know, a supportive, caring adult is key. And I think mental health support is another key factor that has to be in place to have that holistic wraparound support that you want for the young people. I would absolutely agree. We've seen a tremendous shift with our clients since we put those services in. We're not going to be successful with everyone. I wish that were true, but it's not, however, but the mental health overlay really has transformed our program. So what do organizations do that don't have in-house mental health support services? I would imagine the best thing to do would be to partner with an agency like yours that's in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And we kind of on the other side of the house, you know, empowers mental health umbrella, if you will. We do that with other like organizations that maybe don't have the budget or the resources or the ability to offer clinical staff within their programs. So, you know, we'll do that as third party or as MOUs. Yeah, absolutely. What's your geographical area? When young people come to you, where are they coming from? The village is located in Seminole County, which is just north of the Orlando area. It changes. (laughs) There's never an exact 
I would say probably the largest percentage of our youth are coming from what we call the tri-county area, which really is the communities immediately surrounding greater Orlando. But we do accept youth from all over the state. The Village is a unique program in that we're the only one in Central Florida providing this service. And there are very few like us across the state. So there aren't a lot of options. So we make sure that we open our doors and we're available for anybody who needs us. But in this particular program, the 16 beds, you are limited to that number of young people? From a housing perspective, yes, we are limited at 16. It hasn't been so much in the last couple of months, but for a while we were averaging about 14 applications for every open bed. Which really shows the need. It does. It demonstrates the need significantly, which is why those other facets of what we're doing, which are really more community or field-based work, became even more critical. We weren't able to provide a bed or a room for those youth, but we were at least able to offer some services. Do you look to expand your housing program at all to have more beds available? Maybe one day. (laughs) 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 You know, housing as a whole is difficult. And I don't know what it's like across the country, but there's no dedicated funding source in the state of Florida for these services. While some of the youth are receiving a small stipend from their community-based care agencies or their foster care agencies, if they have opted into extended foster care, and if they still qualify based on the expectations of that program, then there may be a small amount of money that they can contribute towards program expenses. But really, there's not a ton of funding. So we are dependent on grants and on donations and community support to keep the services running which, you know, again, is why we were so honored (laughs) and excited to be one of the award recipients last year. We were excited for you. And I'm looking forward to following up in a couple of months to see how the award was utilized. That's something that we're very anxious to learn about from all of the award winners is to see how our support has been able to help young people. Well, since you've mentioned donations, I usually wait to the end, but it was a good segue. If somebody did want to donate to your program, how do they do that? Where do they go? For us as a program, I mean, we always keep a wish list posted on our website. There's always opportunities to engage both from a time perspective as well as from a resource perspective. And we try to just navigate people through that process kind of dependent on their interests. A lot of it for us is, and and we use the saying a lot, and it sounds a little cliche, but it takes a village. We've all heard that, right? And it's true, it takes a village. So we rely very heavily on the community, not just for financial support or donations, but really to offer their skills, their time, their expertise, to show up, to be there for these young people. You know, we rely on groups and individuals to come out and help us with life skills. It's always shocking to me. And, you know, that if I go on campus and and I'll walk into the kitchen, and this happens probably at least once a month, and I will find an open jar of mayonnaise on a cabinet shelf because no one ever taught them that you had to refrigerate it. And it's silly things like you know how to boil water. Well, if you've never been allowed to touch a stove and no one took the time to teach that to you, of course, those are things that someone needs to show and demonstrate. So that's a lot of what we're looking for from the community, but even just basic needs, bedding, and we accept used furniture. It's a great way to help fill the rooms and give these young people a warm, welcoming, personal space when they come on campus and move in. And then subsequently, we, you know, we allow them to take all of that with them when they leave. 
Because I mean, when you're starting out and you're moving into your own first apartment, we don't want them sleeping on the floor of their apartment. You know, we want them to be able to get started and feel good about their next steps and their transition. So you've mentioned the groups from the community. So you partner with individuals in the community as volunteers, but you also partner with other organizations, I imagine? We do. Yep. We work very closely. And when I say it takes a village, we take that seriously. We know and we recognize that we can't do everything on our own, but it doesn't make sense for us to sometimes. So we'll work with domestic violence agencies to come in and to teach self-defense or to talk about interpersonal relationships and what consent means. We'll work with Planned Parenthood groups and medical providers to talk about sexual health, about the body, about hygiene, about personal care. It extends even beyond that to banking institutions and accounting firms that will come in and will help with financial literacy and teaching our young people how to build a budget, you know, how to shop on a budget. We've had a, a volunteer group in recently that came in and I think they gave each of the young people, I think it was $15 on a gift card and took them over to the local grocer and said, okay, figure out how to make a meal this is what you have to do and come up with a meal. And they walked away from that very tangible experience, much more empowered and much more capable afterwards. It seems like there is an opportunity for some kind of checklist. If you're going to start an organization that supports young people aging out of foster care, that there might be some kind of core checklist. Like if you're starting in a community, connect with your banks, connect with your mental health agencies connect with, and so forth. And you can have a list that would help organizations understand where those key partnerships are and to try to build that network as soon as you can. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, our success has been largely because of community support. We've got an incredible staff and we've got the support of a fantastic board of directors, but it's the entire community that has embraced not just our program and our work, but our young people. And I believe that that's really made all of the difference. We started what we call a village council about, gosh, it's probably about eight or nine years ago now. And that group is a group of community individuals who meet on a monthly basis and provide guidance and resources and support for our program. They're not a fiduciary board. They don't have responsibility for the program budget, but they do help to raise money. But more importantly, they are working to build organic relationships with our young people and helping to connect us into the community with other facets that we might need. So if we have a plumbing leak and we need help getting some help out, I use that as reference only because that happened to us recently. But that council has been a game changer for us. It's interesting. I've recently been having conversations with The Open Table, which is another organization that won an award last year. They have a program similar to what you're describing where, you know, a number of adults come together and they support a young person and utilize their social capital, as you're mentioning, the mm -hmm. connections that they have to support the young person in achieving their goals. So it's kind of like you organically built a table, so to speak, for these young people. Yeah, I guess in a proverbial sense, you're right. That's kind of what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's really the key being that social capital, right? Mm-hmm. People know people who know people, right? And so that's how you can find all of the resources that you might need to help a young person learn how to drive, get a certification, get all sorts of different types of assistance. I really like that model. I think it's really great. 
So do you have mentors for the young people from the community? Do you have any volunteer mentors, anything like that? So yes and no. And I say that because it's not a formalized, monitored program or facet. Down the line, that's something that we would like to develop and grow and truly manage in a more formalized capacity. But what we've really relied on are really more of those organic relationships. We did try the mentoring, the formalized mentoring at one point and kind of trying to match our young people. And I don't want to say force them into a relationship, but for lack of a better word, encourage them to build with this individual because we felt like it was a match. Didn't work so well, quite frankly. But what we found was is that having groups on campus that would come out and cook a meal and hang out or would you know teach a cooking class or would do crafts with them on a Saturday afternoon, those relationships organically would start to identify who connected and who didn't. And we've had quite a few young people who continue to maintain relationships with volunteers and even some extraneous staff that were from years ago. To answer your question, I mean, yes and no. Well, I can appreciate that. I can see the value in trying to connect young people with adults, caring, supportive adults. But I also know that it's challenging just to throw people together and say, you know, here, make it work. Now, I know that a lot of organizations have a a screening process and they try to match people as best they can. At least at the start, it could seem a little artificial as opposed to the more organically grown relationships. Yeah. Not to say that they're bad. I don't want to imply that at all. No, and I think it could work. I mean, I think there's obviously there are a lot of mentoring programs out there doing phenomenal work and they've been very, very successful. We just haven't found the secret sauce, you know, and I think for us, we're just not in a place where we're ready to do that yet. Not from even from the youth side, but more from the administrative side. You know, we recognize that in order to have those relationships really work for the benefit of both the young person and the mentor, that there's got to be appropriate training, that there's got to be some boundaries. There's got to be, there's got to be a lot of things in place that we just don't have structure for right now. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's tough to find volunteers, but at least being in the Orlando area, I would think population-wise, you might have an easier time should you decide to go down that road. Yeah, we've been very lucky, and I hate to drag COVID into the conversation, but COVID has done a number on, I think, volunteerism for our organization. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of my peers that are in this nonprofit space, and they're experiencing some similarities. We're just now starting to see the volunteer inquiries and the volunteer interest start to go back up. But it definitely stopped for quite some time. And we felt it as a program. You know, we're very lean. We've got a very small staff, even though we're residential, even though we're 365, 24 7. I mean, we've got a very, very small staff that wear a lot of hats. They definitely felt, (laughs) they felt it. I know a lot of my podcasts back then were really all about how COVID was impacting organizations and how they were managing their way through it. It's challenging. Yeah. And we're continuing to manage our way through it, honestly. Yeah, it's not over yet, but we're hopefully tail end. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I hope you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I did want to ask in your housing program, do you have an adult there on site or are these really like little apartments that the young people run themselves? I'm just curious what your model is like. It's not apartments. It's two separate buildings. They're really side by side. And the bedrooms around the perimeter of the homes. And then there's a communal area in the center of each. Okay. 
they don't have separate entrances then. It's not like a house that's been converted into apartments. It's, it really is a house. Yeah, it's a house. Yeah. So it would be the equivalent of your home and your bedroom door would be your personal space. Gotcha. All right. And you have somebody on site there or are they running the house themselves? We really try to make it independent living. What we find is that the more staff is there, the less the youth will do for themselves <laughs> or really just more dependent they are. We're obviously trying to do the opposite of that. We are staffed almost 24-7, but not quite. So we have staff usually on site from about 7 or 8 a.m. until about 2 a.m. So we've got a window in the early morning hours from about 2 to 7, 2 to 8 that we're not staffed. And then during the daytime on the weekends, but we do have somebody on campus in the evenings all the time. And a lot of that was done just because of transportation needs. We're in a community that does not have a bus route available to us. So the closest bus line is about three miles away. And most of them don't have their own vehicles. Many of them don't even have driver's licenses or can't because they can't meet the insurance requirements. So we provide transportation to and from school, to and from work, and to and from other critical appointments. You said it was on land. Is that nearby the headquarters, if you will, of Empower? So our administrative offices for Empower actually just relocated, and they're technically in another city, but they're only about 15 minutes apart. Oh, okay. Yeah. The land that the village actually sits on is owned by the local county government, and we have a long-term lease with the county for the buildings. It's a fantastic deal. We pay a dollar a year. That is a deal. <laughs> <laughs> it is. We're 100% responsible for all of the maintenance and the upkeep of the buildings, but we don't have all of that overhead in a lease or a mortgage. For us, what that allows us to do then is to take the dollars that we raise or that we collect and put it directly back into program services. Sure. Did you build the homes or were they already on the land? They were already on the land. I believe that years ago, they used to be a children's group home. They were managed by another organization at the time, but had been sitting vacant for a number of years before we had received them. Okay. Yeah, I'm just thinking from the perspective of organizations that might be interested in expanding into transitional housing, how do you find the land? How do you find the homes? Or do you just work with landlords? You know, these are all decisions that organizations have to make. It's the first time I've heard of an agreement with the local government to lease the land. It's an interesting angle for those who want to break into that. That might be something to talk with some local representatives about. Is there any kind of land like that available that's not being used? Right. Yeah. And I think at least for our local community, it just shows the commitment from the county to these services and more importantly, to these youth. Yeah. Okay, I know that I want to talk with you about how the foster care system can improve. It's one of the things that I like to dive into, not complain so much about what the problems were, but where are there opportunities for improvements in the foster care system as a whole to help these young people who are aging out of foster care? So I'm going to pose that question to you. What are some opportunities that you see? Oh, I feel like that's a loaded question. <laughs> you know, I think that and I would imagine that this is probably a little different for every state across the country. In Florida specifically, the budget for foster care services seems to be cut every year, or we are in a position where we're having to do more with less constantly. I understand that 
you know, if you got a pot of money, there's only so much to go around and we have to figure out how to make it work. But sometimes the laws and the mandates can complicate and make more convoluted the expectations of the services. Not to get on a soapbox, but I think advocacy is definitely something that is critical and is important. I think that we as organizations or as trade associations need to be engaged in the conversations that affect our work and affect the kids and the young people that we're serving. I'm trying to figure out how to answer your question without sounding negative. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. You could be a little negative, but then we'll go back to being positive. (laughs) I also think that we have to listen to the kids. We have to listen to the ones that are actually being affected and impacted by our decisions. So often decisions are being made by administrators behind a closed door in an office, and there are always reasons and rationale for those decisions, and we're part of some of them many of the times. But we find that if we sit down and we have a conversation with the young people and we really get their perspective, we start to learn a whole lot more about how we can change and how we can improve. Do you have an advocacy arm at all that goes to your local or state level representatives to share the issues? Not a committee of sorts. I mean, under our organizational umbrella, we're certainly engaged from our board level and from a staff perspective when we can be, as long as, you know, we obviously have some fine lines there that we have to be cautious of and want to be respectful of too. But we're part of trade organizations, so we're always keeping our finger on the pulse. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I I'm, imagine there are advocacy organizations that listen to this, and it's work that's very much appreciated, especially when you get young people involved. Because like you're saying, if you could take the young people to decision makers and have them share their stories, it's so much more impactful. Yep. It personalizes it. Absolutely. I always think, how can things be scalable? If you have something great, how can it be scalable, right? As opposed to just staying in your little pocket of the world. How great would it be if your model were adopted by other mental health agencies around the country, right? Start with the mental health agencies and then build out these kinds of supports for young people aging out of foster care. I think that could do so much. I've thought this way ever since I worked at Milton Hershey School, which is a residential school for K through 12, young people from poverty situations in Pennsylvania. And who started that? Milton Hershey, who started the Hershey Company. The school owns 51% of the stock of the Hershey Company. So everyone who eats chocolate supports this great school. It's housing, it's life skills, it's education. They even pay for college for young people after they graduate from high school. And it does amazing things. But I thought, what if every large company started a school like that? How amazing would it be to be able to help more and more people? And so I always think about the scalability aspect. So if you have a mental health agency out there, there you go. You could contact Marcy, (laughs) benchmark with them, and find out how in the world can you do it too. We're open to those discussions and conversations. The more kids we can get off the streets and transitioning successfully to adulthood, the better. Yeah, and I I don't want to certainly bash the foster care system, but I just, I really have this feeling like the private organizations, the nonprofit organizations, companies, if we could come together rather than being so siloed, I think we could make a huge difference. I agree. It takes us all working together. Come up with solutions, come up with best practices, help each other find funding, help each other find staff even, right? Right. 
I think there's so much opportunity there. So that's what we're trying to do in part is try to connect to organizations and individuals who work with these young people to start breaking down those barriers. Yeah, agreed. I think, you know, just kind of on your point there, when you talk about funding in particular, I think that's probably one of the challenges not just that there's not a lot of it out there, but that it's so competitive that yes. we have to compete with each other. And that's when we start to get territorial and we don't want to work collaboratively or in partnership because mm-hmm. we're trying to keep our piece of the pie. Right. That's one of the reasons why Aging Out Institute chose for its awards program to be a once and done. Once you win, you can't apply again. So that hopefully the past winners will have other connections to say, oh, you should apply for this award rather than trying to go back to the same well over and over again. That's what I encourage organizations to do is let other organizations know about Aging Out Institute because this year, again, our awards program has started. The application window is open and organizations can apply and there's significant monetary prizes involved. So that's my plug (laughs) for AOI. (laughs) Good timing. Well, I wanted to tell you one thing, Marcy. I'm actually going to be in Orlando the end of August. From August 30th to September 2nd, I am attending the Daniel Kids Independent Living Conference. Wonderful. Do you know about that conference? I'm familiar with it, yes. It's only been around for 34 years, you know, so it's relatively (laughs) new, but it does focus on this population and the adults who work with them. And so it's my first opportunity to go down and attend, but I'm going to be down there. So I want to be in touch with you because maybe if the timing works out, I could come and visit. We would love that. I'll let you know. I will follow up. So I haven't bought my registration yet, but it's going to probably happen this weekend. (laughs) Then I'll be committed. Sounds good. And I'll plug them too. So anyone who's listening, if you've never attended that conference, certainly something to look into. It's danielkids.org. And then they have a link for their conferences and it's the Independent Living Conference. I think we're probably at the end of our time, unless I don't want to cut you off. If you have any last thoughts that you would want to share about Empower and the Villages, would love to hear it. No, I just thank you so much for giving us the platform to talk about our work and to share what we're doing and to work in partnership with you and with Aging Out Institute. We're really proud and honored to be included. Well, thank you so much. And we're honored to work with you and love the work that you're doing for young people. We look forward to seeing how things continue to grow down there and the work that you're providing. We'll keep an eye on that. And so with that, thank you very much. For those who have listened to the end of this podcast, thank you. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can find them on our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and look for our podcast link. And until next time then, hope everybody has a great couple of weeks. Take care.